Hello and welcome everybody to Public Health for the People with Dr. Amber. My name is Dr. Amber Schmicke and today we are going to talk about how the COVID-19 pandemic is playing out in Georgia, what trends are looking like nationally and globally, and then also we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on what is public health. So today is July 27th when I'm recording this. And so first we'll take a look at the week that led up to this in Georgia. So just understand that if you're listening to this for the first time and you know several weeks from now, understand that the data I'm talking about might be outdated by the time you listen to it. Um, but for now, if we look back at the last week, uh, we had a really big week for testing. In fact, we set a record for single day tests at one point, um, but our percent positive rate is still averaging about 13%. And in order to contain the virus, the World Health Organization recommends that we be at or below 5%. And that number is important because it means that we are testing widely enough that we are unlikely to be missing any asymptomatic carriers that might be transmitting the disease in our communities. So we need to be at or below that 5%. And right now we're about, you know, we're 13.2%. So we're over twice as high as we need to be. Uh, We also set a record for cases in a single month. It was unfortunately more than doubling our case total. So we have doubled the size of the pandemic in less than a month's time. And so that's that's concerning. Our new cases are skewing towards younger populations and our largest demographic is the 18 to 29 year olds. And so, you know, we need to um, remember that even though you are young and awesome, you are not invincible. So just understand that you can get this illness, you can transmit it to others. Uh, If we look at a tool that comes from Harvard, um, their Global Health Institute, um, they have a really neat sort of stoplight color coding tool that lets you look at the risk of different counties within the United States. And if you look at the map for Georgia, then only about 16 of Georgia's 159 counties have a transmission level over the last seven days that would support a continued reopening. In fact, based on their recommendations, we should actually be sheltering in place in 143 of our Georgia counties because we have such widespread disease that we don't really have the the ability to track or cope with it. In fact, if you look at the CDC data, you can compare all of the um, case totals across states. And we actually had the fourth largest weekly total after Florida, California, and Texas. Um, So at least we're not first, but uh, we definitely don't need to be this high. That's for sure. With respect to hospitalizations, we saw an interesting development, um, worrisome development this week, in that for Hospital Region E, and these are set by Georgia Emergency Management Agency, Region E covers Athens, Clark, and some of the surrounding counties, and they actually ran out of ICU bed space this week. Um, And that happened again today, actually, too, on Monday. Um, So it's happened twice now in the last week. And yes, I know that um, hospitals, you know, in order to be profitable, need to run at or near capacity for certain beds, but probably not their ICUs. Those are used in case of, you know, severe complications of illness um, and and those sorts of things. This is not a recovery after a planned surgery unless something has gone wrong. Um, And the other thing is just understand that an ICU isn't just a bed, it's the people that support it. So, you know, I know sometimes people look at the GEMA numbers and say, you know, there's no ICU beds, but they got plenty of general inpatient beds. Can't they just convert those into ICU beds? And I suppose that might work on a triage strategy 
for a time. But we need to understand that, again, the bed is more than just the bed. It's the people that have to support it. You have to have intensivist physicians. You need to have specialist nurses, um, respiratory therapists, and others that support that person um, who's in the bed. So it's not just a matter of plug and play and, and change the equipment around. You need the expertise to go with it. The other record that we set last week was for adult ventilator usage. And it's important to remember that GEMA does not distinguish how many of these ICUs or ventilators are being used for COVID patients, but I don't think it really matters all that much. The idea that we are running low on ICUs is concerning because even if it's not COVID that needs the next bed, what if it's a car accident? We need that bed to be available for those folks. And in the time that GEMA has been producing these daily situation reports and reporting the bed capacity since March, I've never seen a time that a hospital region has run out of ICU bed space. And it happened twice in the last seven days um, in Region E. So I don't know that this is necessarily cause for panic, but it is a worrisome development. Our new hospitalizations over the last week were centered around the age group of 60 to 69, and they had a normal distribution, meaning that they have what looks like a bell-shaped curve. So, you know, there are hospitalizations among younger populations and older ones, but the the tip of the, the bell is in that 60 to 69-year-old bracket. For deaths, we um, set a record when it comes to the weekly total, and deaths are starting to increase again, unfortunately, if you look at the death curve on the Georgia Department of Health website. Um, and that increase began about three weeks after our cases have surged. Uh, the new deaths that are occurring are largely among the elderly, um, as you might have expected, and there are increases for every age group starting at about 50 years old. Next, we'll start talking about what is happening nationally, and a lot of these data come from the CDC. And it's important to note that, you know, while the Department of Public Health lets us take a look in Georgia, that is, lets us take a look at cases by date of symptom onset, the CDC isn't graphing it that way, which is a little bit unusual. Usually for most outbreaks, they do graph based on date of symptom onset. Um, but in this case, now since about mid-April, they've been graphing by date of case report. And this may be a, a function of the backlogs that we see in testing, but it's important to remember why this might matter. So when you graph by date of symptom onset, you can see better how the disease and the outbreak has unfolded over time because you could see when people got sick, when cases started to increase, and how that might associate with certain milestones in your strategy or events like Memorial Day weekend, for example, or something like that. But it is very vulnerable to testing delays. And so that's why many of those graphs will have a 14-day window of uncertainty while we're waiting for case reports to come in. Uh, you know, with the backlog in testing that we've had and the number of asymptomatic carriers that we've been finding, it's harder to pinpoint when a person actually started displaying symptoms if they were asymptomatic. So for those people, they're usually graphed based on the date of their specimen collection. And so then the date of symptom onset graph kind of loses its value a little bit. And so maybe that's the reason why CDC is reporting the data this way now, where they're only graphing based on date of case report, but it doesn't Again, it limits our ability to see how the pandemic is playing out over time. But the trend does show that there is a leveling off taking place. Um, again, these would not necessarily be vulnerable to the delayed reporting in the sense that, you know, a person waits or doesn't get sick right away. They have an incubation period. They might delay seeking testing, et cetera. 
but it is vulnerable to delays or uh, shortages in testing. So this leveling that we're seeing may not be real. It may be real, I hope it is, um, but it may not be real if we've hit a testing wall, so to speak, um, where we have maxed out our capacity um, and we we know that there are shortages of test reagents, the, the chemicals that the laboratorians are using to perform the tests. And so, you know, we might see um, a surge as those backlogs are cleared. We'll just have to wait and see. Hospitalizations nationally are trending younger and have for the last six weeks. They are primarily centered in 18 to 49 year olds. And so that's different than what we've been seeing in Georgia, where ours are primarily in the 60 to 69 year old category. The rates of hospitalization are, are pretty interesting, though, when you look at racial background. So for some of our communities of color, especially Hispanic or Latino populations, non-Hispanic, Black or African-American populations, and non-Hispanic American Indian or Alaska Native populations, their rate of hospitalization is four and a half to five times as high as for non-Hispanic white populations. And there's two possibilities for this. Could it be a function of social determinants of health? We know there are racial inequities in our healthcare system. There's systemic or systematic racism that, um, you know, makes it harder for people of color to access healthcare that they need. Um, but we also know that this could be sort of a shots on goal kind of problem. If you're a soccer fan, you'll know what that means. Um, it's kind of the idea that you make 0% of the shots that you never take, but the more shots you take, the more shots you make. And so because these communities of color tend to make up more of our essential workforce that have been having to go back to work, even in the pandemic, the virus may have had more opportunity to um, infect these individuals. And so this may be sort of just a numbers effect of that problem. Next, let's take a quick look at how the United States fits into the global picture. So unfortunately, we are winning at a contest that nobody should want to win. We lead the way in every category, whether it's cases, deaths, you name it. Um, when you adjust for population by 100,000 residents, for example, our case rate is 1,280 per 100,000 residents. And that is really high. It's the highest in the world. And, you know, when we look at other countries, I, you know, I, I did a comparison where I looked at, you know, the next highest rate was Brazil. I also looked at our neighbors here on North American, on the North American continent. I looked at countries that had a higher population density that we did. And it doesn't seem to be an issue of population density because countries like India and China have lower confirmed case rates, but also much, much lower death rates. For example, in India, they have four times our population, but our death rate is 22 times higher, which is insane. For China, our death rate is 148 times higher. And that's the epicenter of the pandemic. And next, let's take a look at like our neighbors to the north and south. When you look at Canada and Mexico, our case rate is four times higher than they are seen. So it's not an issue of geography or, you know, that sort of thing. And our death rate is about two times higher. So again, you know, I see a lot of people making mention of the fact that, you know, we don't need to close all these things because look at our absurdly low death rate. And I want people to recognize that you should be grateful that our death rate is as low as it is. The reason it's as low as it is, is because we have closed things down to try to interrupt transmission. What numbers like this show us when we look at the U.S. compared to other countries is that it doesn't have to be this way. And so it's really frustrating as a person who works in public health to see these numbers of probably preventable deaths. 
Um, it's just, it, it just doesn't sit well. Okay, and so for today's deep dive, the special topic of this podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about what is public health. And of course, you may have recognized that I am, of course, a huge fan of public health. So I am a big cheerleader of those who are working in the field. Uh, So there are differences in the way that a medical doctor views the world versus how a public health professional views the world. Um, That's not to say that medical professionals aren't in the field of public health. They absolutely are. And many of our physicians, especially our rural physicians, wear sort of two hats. They are both the medical doctor that's treating a patient in front of them, but they are also sort of sometimes serving as a public health commissioner for their district or their county. Um, So they, they wear both hats a lot of the time. Uh, So, for example, what I mean when I say that a medical doctor views the world a little differently, you know, when they are treating somebody, when they are using their expertise, they are often working on one person that's in front of them. And they have extensive knowledge about how the body works. And it's important that they know that. They know the biochemistry, the anatomy, all the different things that make a a human body work the way that it does. Um, And they're great at restoring people back to health. And that's a little different than the way that a public health professional treats the world. So a public health professional isn't, their patient is not the person in front of them. It's an entire community. It could be a city. It could be a county. It could be a state. It could be a country. Um, It could be the world if you work for, for example, the World Health Organization. This is often a career field that doesn't usually get the limelight. Um, This is sometimes sort of a thankless task. For the most part, people don't pay attention to public health unless something has gone wrong. And then everybody's mad at us. Um, So, but this is how it goes. You know, I was telling my students once, you know, when I was talking to them about how vaccines work, because they're going to save a lot of lives doing this, but nobody names their baby after the doctor who gave them a vaccination. They name their babies after the doctor who delivered them. Um, and so, you know, public health doesn't usually get the the praise that, that a medical doctor does. And that's fine. We have different roles. We serve different communities. So public health, you know, is very community focused and there's a lot of data that they consider. And it's not just infectious disease. And I think that's really important for people to know while we have sort of your attention is that public health does a lot of important work from things like the newborn screening program that identifies certain genetic disorders that we might be able to help, the health department inspections of your restaurants to keep you safe, uh, you know, looking at vital statistics and what are the leading causes of death. All of these things play a role um, and are collected within the public health. And I know that I'm ignoring a lot of things right now for the sake of time. So if you have a pet project in public health that you love, I hope to talk about it someday on this podcast, but not for now. Public health is also, it also has a hierarchy and an organization. So you can have a county level health department. Um, sometimes uh, you will also, you could have a regional one that supersedes that or a state one, depending on the way that your state functions. All the state labs um, or state health departments do report to the Centers for Disease Control for certain mandatory notifiable diseases. Uh, but there are other things that they report up um, so that the CDC can keep sort of a pulse on what's going on in the entire U.S. community. 
it's important to remember that federalism still applies in public health. So for example, I did my postdoc, which is sort of like an apprenticeship after you get your PhD at the CDC in Atlanta, working in the pertussis laboratory. And, you know, we would assist with pertussis outbreaks in the States, but the state always ran point on these things. We could only get involved if we were invited to participate by the state. We couldn't just come in and be like, you got a pertussis outbreak, so we're going to take over. That's not how it works. We had to be invited. And so just understand that there's a hierarchy and an organization to this. Another big thing is that public health is public and it is therefore political. Um, Every public health agency is responsible to a public population. And our our public populations are all sort of led by politicians, which is that's how it works. It works well. But just understand that the leader of each of these organizations is usually a political appointee. And so depending on a politician's level of comfort with science and awareness of it, you can see differences in the way that public health data are presented, how they are broadcast to the community. And there may or may not be a little bit more influence from a leader's office to a public health agency. Um, so this is, you know, I really try to stay very apolitical in all of this, but just understand that there are um, career uh, public health professionals that work at these agencies, regardless of who's in charge. Um, and that continuity is really important. Uh, we need that level of expertise to be maintained, regardless of who's in charge. Um, when I was at CDC, I was there for the handover between George W. Bush and Barack Obama. And from the perspective of somebody working in a laboratory, not much changed from my perspective in the sense that I still went to, to work, still did my job. So to a lot of the people that work at these agencies, it doesn't impact their daily lives. But I will say that one thing that's really frustrating is when you have data that shows something important and politics gets in the way of you sharing that information. Um, It does happen. It's an unfortunate part of public health. It just is what it is. So with that and what I was talking about earlier with respect to the U.S. and how we compare to global trends for the pandemic, I think we've seen that in this country and in the state, um, we have sort of tried to cope with the pandemic, which is a scientific problem, using political solutions. And I don't think that that's working out very well for us. And we can see that in how our case rate compares to other countries, how our death rate compares to other countries. And just like you wouldn't want to, let's see, have a plumber come in to fix your internet, um, we know that we need to have the right person in the right place to solve some of these problems. And so I would argue that, you know, we need to do a better job in this country of letting the scientists and the public health professionals take a lead on this. Considering that we've got, you know, a high case rate compared to other countries, we've got a high death rate compared to other countries, I think we can see that you know, one of the differences in the way that we've approached this compared to other countries is that, you know, where other countries have taken a much more data-driven and science-driven approach with longer shelter-in-place orders, um, with more strategic reopenings that limited transmission, they've had more success. Um, In this country, for whatever reason, we have needed to prioritize political and economic considerations. And unfortunately, it's not working out. And, you know, all of these countries are in this pandemic together. 
they are ob- other countries are obviously going to suffer economic impacts too. But I think that we can appreciate that if they can get their disease under control faster, then they get back to normal life faster. And I know we're all tired of being here. So let's get to the other side of this pandemic. And because the pandemic is a scientific or medical problem, we need scientists and medical professionals to get us to the other side of this thing. And so hopefully we can get to the other side of this. Um, I don't, I'm not holding my breath that it's going to happen anytime soon. And, and so what that means without that is that we're probably going to live in some state of this sort of limbo land until we have a vaccine. And it's just really upsetting, like I said, to see preventable deaths. Earlier in the podcast, I mentioned that. Um, And so to see that and to know that other countries are doing this better than we are, um, it's not an issue of jealousy. It's just sadness. You know, like the people who are dying in this country don't have to be dying. And it it just it's one of the harder parts of being in public health, honestly, is to see when when you produce all these data, but it doesn't seem to make a difference. So I'm going to, on that very happy note, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has um, subscribed to the podcast. Some people have left some reviews. Wow. Thank you. Um, I will say that I didn't know how this was going to go and I'm grateful for your support. So I'm glad to know that you're finding the podcast useful. Thanks for hanging with me for this episode. Next week, I hope to talk about either the scientific method or testing, both of which will be riveting concepts, I'm sure. Uh, But that's it for this week. Be safe and be well.